preached here um, a couple weeks ago, Habits for Harvest, and uh, essentially challenging us, um, you know, to have disciplines in our life that would be conducive to harvest in the community, and one of those was teaching Bible studies, and um, it, it, was, it was so encouraging to see um, many of you came to me afterwards and um, you know, had, had been inspired to order that Bible study or, or uh, inspired to ask somebody that God had been placing on your heart to see if they would be interested in a Bible study. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for that. And I'm believing that God, uh, God loves lost people enough to anoint whoever he has to anoint in order to teach his word however it needs to be taught so that he can reach souls. Um, so you are qualified. You are talented enough. And uh, God will help you and assist you in that. But that being said, um, how I, I normally start every single one of the Bible studies that, that I've been privileged to teach, um, I, I always start the lesson before the lesson, if that makes sense. Um, a lot of times um, you'll start in Adam and Eve in the garden. I personally like to start in lesson seven, which is in the New Testament in Matthew, um, and, and get people where they're actually at right now. Um, but before we do all that, I like to sit down and have a time of fellowship, a time of just talking. And if they've got any questions that they want to ask and, and try to get a pulse at, as far as where they are at in their beliefs, where they are at, you know, we're getting ready to go into a 12 week commitment of, of studying this, this word right here. And I think it's important for us to gauge where the person that we are teaching is at as far as their beliefs and their experience and, and any questions that they have. But it's imperative for me when I teach a Bible study, I need to know that the person I'm teaching believes that this is the word of God, that it's that it's not just a book that is historical. That it's not just a book that a bunch of men wrote thousands of years ago and it's been translated so many different times that there's, there's just no way you can believe in the accuracy of it. We need to establish before we commit to a 12-week process of studying this book that you understand and believe that this is in fact the inspired word of God. So that's what we're going to talk to you about tonight. I just want to talk very, you know, I'll be mindful of the time. I've got my timer going right now. Um, it, it, title of my message is just in defense of the word of God, in defense of the word of God. And uh, w- there's, there's many different reasons that I believe um, that you can believe in the word of God, that you can believe in the accuracy of the Bible. And uh, one of those uh, is the historical value of the Bible. Um, there's there's a lot of history that is found throughout Scripture. A lot of it in the Old Testament, different uh, nations, different kingdoms. Um, you know, we've got uh, a lot of the kingdoms that are are still modern day in existence right now. Um, and so we have this as the Word of God, but we also have complementary resources that we can read and see from the Assyrians, the Babylonians, you know, um, the Egyptians. There's many different cultures that still have artifacts to this day that we have access to that when we read a different culture or a different kingdom's description of their history and we compare it to what we read in the Bible, they go perfectly together. That the king of this nation says that he was in war with this king of Israel in this year, and, and it matches up with the Bible. 
So that validates this as a historically accurate document. Do we all follow? Everybody with me? Um, I, I studied um, one of the, my favorite uh, stories in the Old Testament is the exodus out of Egypt. And Egypt is one of those cultures that has um, a lot of those hieroglyphics, a lot of the pyramids still in existence today. We have a lot of artifacts from that, from that nation still in existence today. But the crossing of the Red Sea has always intrigued me because it was just such an incredible miracle that happened with over millions of people. And we read about this, of course, in Exodus, where Israel comes to the Red Sea. And uh, as the Bible says, it's very clear that they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. And when you take the um, scientific study behind that, when you look at the floor of the Red Sea, um, it's like if you drained all the water out of it and you could see it as land. It's act- the Red Sea is actually very, very deep. But there is one portion of the Red Sea that connects the two bodies and, and it's like it goes from the deep and on both sides it comes up to a couple hundred yards wide and it's about 900, 900 feet below the water level and it's essentially a road that goes on the floor of the Red Sea. It's, it's literally a path that you could see millions of people crossing from one side to the other. Now, the nation of Egypt, they, um, they don't allow excavation from the bottom of the Red Sea, but you can scuba dive there, and, and you know it's been well documented that at the bottom of the Red Sea, there are encrusted in um, coral reef, there are what appears to be perfect circles um, of wheels connected to rods with another perfect circle at the bottom of the Red Sea on the edges of these cliffs off of the path. And, um, you know, interestingly enough, Egypt, their chariots, which we know Pharaoh's army was chasing um, Israel with chariots, right? And, and when you study the, the different spokes on the wheels of the chariots, Egypt was known to have four, five, and six spokes, but there was one very specific time in their existence that their chariot wheels had eight spokes, Okay, and when you when you ask um, historians, Egypt historians, they will tell you that the eight-spoked chariot wheels can be traced back to the 18th dynasty, 3,500 years ago, which perfectly coincides with what the Bible describes as the Exodus from Egypt. That there is literal evidence at the bottom of the Red Sea that backs up the account that we read in the book of Exodus. historical value. Just one thing. There's another instance that I can think of in in the Old Testament that Daniel is in um, the Babylonians and he is uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and Daniel actually interprets the dream and it was a a statue of of a gold head and and silver chest and arms and um, you know it had uh, waist and legs different material um, And so he interprets that. He says, you know what, King Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. He said, you're in power right now. You're the strongest kingdom in the land. I said, but there's coming a kingdom that's going to overtake you. And the kingdom's going to overtake you. And then it's different kingdoms that are going to overtake one another. And we, of course, have the historical reference to that. 
that when the Babylonians were in power, there was a kingdom that overtook them. It was the Medes and the Persians, which is why you have the, the, the two arms, right, for the statue that Daniel saw. And then Alexander the Great rose to power in the Greeks, and he actually overtook the Medes and the Persians. And then we know that the, the Romans came on power and overtake or defeated Alexander the Great. So we know that it backs up what Daniel said in his interpretation of the dream that these kingdoms would overtake one another. And that is a fact, you know, historically factual um, thing that we have access to this day. Um, I, I think one of the greatest discoveries that, that has been made is something called Hezekiah's Tunnel. Is anybody familiar with Hezekiah's Tunnel? Hezekiah was a king in the Old Testament. And, and it says in the Bible, it says that he actually carved out a tunnel underneath the, the city of Jerusalem. And it wasn't until the 1800s that, that people were reading about Hezekiah's tunnel. And in Jerusalem, they say, well, where is the tunnel at? And because of what the Bible had to say, they began seeking for, to find this tunnel. And guess what? Just as the Bible had recorded, they were able to find the tunnel that is mentioned in, in Scripture. Isn't that amazing that they read the Bible and the Bible was true before we ever really even found what it was talking about? Okay, The historical value that is in the Word of God is one of the reasons why we can believe that. I, I think about, you know, there was an interest in, um, instance in the Old Testament where um, God was instructing through Moses how to handle disease and how to handle sickness. And, you know, if you had a sore, you know, on your arm or if you had a sore in your flesh, how to, how to gauge that. And, and it reminds me of, of, you know, spring of 2020. Does anybody remember spring of 2020? You know, where, where everybody is masked up. In fact, I was in the, I was in a tree stand in the woods a few weeks ago. I didn't have any internet service, so I was just I was reading scripture, and then I I go and I delete some of my old photos and just kind of cleaning it up. And I I came across all those old photos of of 2020 and you know Monday night prayer, and everybody's got masks on. And it's like I was just I'm thanking God in my tree stand that we're not dealing with that anymore. But. One thing that, that COVID really brought to the forefront is, you know what, washing of your hands and making sure that you're not contaminating one another and whatever you touch could be contaminated and cross-contamination. And, um, you know, there are things that the Bible talks about that seem to be well ahead of its time. One of those is mentioned in, in um, Leviticus 15 when talking about the, the sores and the healing of disease and, and skin disease. And, um, and it says this, and, and it says, when the, you have an issue that's cleansed of the issue or the sores or the sickness, it says you're going to number yourself seven days from being clean, wash your clothes, bathe in fresh, uh, flesh in running water, and it shall be clean. And I was reading that, you know, I don't know how many years ago, and I was just like, you know what? How did they know to bathe in running water? Because I started studying, you ever seen those old movies, where the old war movies, and, and you've got a bunch of different patients in the room, and, and the doctor walks up, and there's a bowl right next to the bed, and he washes his hands in the bowl of water, and then goes right on to the next patient? It, it wasn't until the late 1800s that we even understood that we need to wash in running water. But all the way back in Leviticus, 
They're talking about trying to stop the spread and contamination. Say, you know what? You need to wash in running water. How did Moses, if that, if that is just a book written by a guy thousands of years ago, how did he understand how germs work, how viruses work, how contamination works? There's no possible way. But the God of all knowledge inspired what to write and knew how to preserve and contain sickness and disease. That's how another reasons why you can trust in this Bible. One of the greatest things that I, I feel like you can trust in the Bible is, is prophecy. Um, from the beginning to the end, the Bible is full of, of prophecies. Prophecies are just essentially God calling his shot. God saying, this is what's going to happen, Right? And, and sure enough, it comes to pass. Um, there's, there's, there's over 400 prophecies about Messiah. And, and in fact, when you study everything that Jesus did when he came to this earth, all of the different prophecies that he fulfilled, it was well over 300 of them. And he fulfilled them perfectly. And in fact, there's, there's about a hundred and some left over that aren't fulfilled yet. But I believe that those will get fulfilled at his second coming. So pastor described it like this when referring to the messianic prophecies. He said the, the statistical odds, right? I don't get a hand clap for statistical. The statistical odds of over 300 prophecies about Messiah coming true. This is what he said. It blew my mind. He says, if you take a silver dollar and you, you write your name on it, and then you take the state the size of Texas and you bury Texas in silver dollars three feet deep. And you fly a helicopter over Texas and throw that one out. And they're all mixed up. And then you're blindfolded and you're wandering around Texas. And you reach down randomly, reach down into all those silver dollars and you pull out the one that you signed your name on. That is the odds of Jesus Christ actually fulfilling over 300 of these messianic prophecies. It's impossible. It's an impossibility. But with God, all things are possible. That's why we knew he had to be born in Bethlehem. That's how we knew he was going to be born of a virgin. Can you imagine Isaiah writing that? Messiah is going to be born of a virgin. She's never going to know a man but give birth. And he's got to sign his name to that book. That's the book of Isaiah. He's putting his credibility on the line. But that's exactly what we know happened. The Bible says that he would ride in, in on a donkey. He'd be, he would hang on a cursed tree. There are so many different prophecies about Messiah coming true that you can, you can use that as evidence that I can trust in the word of God. And there's prophecies that are coming true. It seems like in the news daily, as, as we watch the news, there's prophecy coming true. Prophet, has there ever been a more of a time that you could see a one world government? Has there ever been more of a time that you could see a one world currency? Have you ever seen a time where you got to have something in your hand or your forehead where you can't buy or sell without it? Have, has there ever been more of a time where you can see that as not that far away. 
That is Bible prophecy. There's no other book like it. No other book like it. If, if I were to say, you know what, there are continuous themes that are throughout the Bible. Now, we know that the Bible is written, uh, you know, has, has different writers, um, at, at least 32 of them. We truthfully, we don't really know how many authors there were, but at least 32 different authors um, written over the span of about 1500 years and on at least three continents. That's, that's how vast the writers are. Okay. Can you imagine if we just took 10 people from this room and said, you know what? I want you to write a story. And, and after everybody wrote their story, we got everybody back together and we read one story after another. How many of those 10 stories, just 10, do you think would be the same themes? would be the same message, would be about the same person, would be in the same time frame. The odds of that are unbelievably extraordinarily. But 32 different authors over the span of 1,500 different years, there's no possible way that, that there should be a continual theme from beginning to the end. There's no possible way that should happen. But from the very beginning, we know that man gets in trouble and man needs a savior. And the redemption of humanity requires the shedding of innocent blood. That's from the very beginning. That's thousands of years before Calvary. Yet it's woven throughout scripture. It's um, I, 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 one of my favorite things to do is, is to go through Old Testament um, scripture and try to find um, the concealment of the gospel. Right. I'll take into context the room that I'm in. We know that the gospel is the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Repentance, water baptism in Jesus name and filling of the Holy Ghost. So I try to find where that's hidden in the Old Testament. And and I remember the, the, the time that I found, I believe that's one of those continuous themes that is stretched throughout the entire God, the entire Bible is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I found one one time. It was in Leviticus 14. And uh, the, the Bible translation I was reading that year, it said that um, it, it wasn't actually part of the of verse one, but it was just right above verse one. And it said for the healing of a flesh disease. And it was like light bulbs started going off in my head. It's like the healing of flesh disease I was like, well, I don't know any bigger disease of flesh than sin. Cancer's got nothing on sin. AIDS has got nothing on sin. There's no, there's no disease like sin. And so it, this was for what happens when you're healed of, of a flesh disease. And so I started looking through it through the lens of the gospel. And it's, of course, uh, about the two turtle doves. And when you're healed of leprosy, you know, you wring one's neck. So there's the shedding of blood. You catch the blood. You tie a ribbon around the other dove. And that one gets to go free. So there has to be a sacrifice so that one could go free. You know, of course, we know what we're, we're talking about here. Then the priest would have to wash after they wring the neck of the one. You let the dove go. You've got to go to the water and you've got to wash to get clean. Water baptism. And then there was the application of oil on the right thumb, the right earlobe, the right toe. It's the application of anointing, the anointing oil, which, of course, is the Holy Ghost. And I'm and I'm reading that and, and I'm just I'm so I just I found another one that that the gospel is concealed in Leviticus 14. 
But pastor was up here and he was talking about, you remember the story of, um, of um, the lepers that got healed? You remember that? Jesus healed the 10 lepers. And he says, what did he say? He says, go show yourself to the priest and tell them to offer the gift that Moses commanded. Jesus is referencing Leviticus 14. Okay? And so they turn around, they start leaving, and one of them turns back, falls down and worships. And, and that's usually where my brain shuts off. It's like, well, he got it. He understood, right? But pastor said one time, he said, by the one turning around and coming back to worship, he was actually the only one who obeyed. Because there is the priest, and then there's the priest. And so by turning back to Jesus Christ, he was acknowledging you're the priest. So he's saying this, and I'm over here, and, and it's like, it's going crazy in my mind because of my familiarity with Leviticus 14. And I was like, boss, you didn't finish it. I said, when they turned back acknowledging Jesus was the priest, Jesus didn't say, just go show yourself to the priest. He says, go show yourself to the priest and tell them to offer the gift that Moses commanded. I believe when that, when that leper turned around and came back to Jesus Christ, acknowledging him as the priest, he's also telling Jesus, you need to offer the gift that Moses commanded. Jesus understanding Leviticus 14, the gospel concealed. That leper's confirming Calvary. That leper is confirming to Jesus Christ, I'm the dove that has to shed its blood so that he can be set free. There's themes in the Bible. You're talking about Leviticus, thousands of years old, connecting perfectly with Jesus in the New Testament. It's, it's in sync. It's, it's in harmony with one another. It's not somebody wrote it back there and by chance Matthew wrote it over here and it's perfectly together. No possible way. It's an impossibility. You can trust in the Word of God. If I were to say, if I were to say appointed scriptures... Does anybody know what appointed scriptures are? Okay, good. Um, the Jewish culture for thousands of years have, have appointed scriptures. So every Sabbath they come together in synagogue. And they don't just pick a scroll and read blindly you know, out of the scrolls that they feel like reading. They have certain scriptures that they are supposed to read that have been designated for years okay they're appointed scriptures so does anybody know when when the nation of israel became a nation 1948 no 1948 okay may 15th 1948 is when the nation of israel became a nation okay it was a saturday it was an appointed sabbath and on the Sabbath, so Jews all over the world, this isn't just in the nation of Israel, Jews all over the world in synagogues everywhere, they come together and they read the same appointed scripture. And the appointed scripture 
on May 15, 1948, on the Sabbath, is Amos 9, verses 11 through 15. Now keep in mind, they've just come through being surrounded by other nations' armies. They had a six-day war where God miraculously preserved them and kept them from being destroyed. The war is now over. At the end of of that, that long week, guess what? Now they have survived, and they are becoming a nation that they had been scattered for 2,000 years. And just like God promised he would do, he promised to bring them back from the four corners of the earth and gather them back together in the land that he promised. And on the very day that this actually happens and they become a nation, this is the scripture that was appointed for that day. It's in Amos 9. It says, in that day, this is God talking, in that day I will rise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen. And close up the breaches thereof. And I will raise up the ruins and I will build it as in the days of old. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the heathen that are called by my name, saith the Lord, doeth this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes that sow a seed in the mountains shall drop sweet wine and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink wine thereof, and they shall make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more, listen, they shall no more be pulled out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. Long before they ever became a nation, God appointed this scripture to be read on the exact day that they become a nation. You can trust in the Bible. You can trust in the word of God. It's incredible. It's incredible. On September 11th, 2001, a very tragic day, a very, very tragic day in the history of this nation. Uh, we were attacked from with, uh, you know, aircraft and hit into the Twin Towers. But what a lot of people don't know is that on September 11th, 2001, the Jews, the highest concentration of, of Jews in America is in New York City. And they were celebrating the Feast of Trumpets. Um, you know, and pastors taught us all about that for years. I can't get sidetracked with that, but the Feast of Trumpets was being celebrated. And so on the morning of September 11th, the Jews in the city uh, of New York City were actually blowing their shofars and those, those long curly horns at, that we read about in the Old Testament. And those, those shofars um, are, are for two things, really a call to war and a warning of attack, Right. And, and so on the very day, you have the Jews in New York City blowing these shofars as an impending attack. And there was, of course, the Sabbath for that week and the appointed, we're talking about appointed scriptures. The appointed scriptures for September 11th, 2001, that week is Deuteronomy 28, verse 49. This is what the appointed scripture said for the week of September 11th, 2001. It says, The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from the end of the earth, swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose tongue you're not going to understand, a nation of fierce countenance 
which shall not regard the person of old, nor show favor to the young. Jews were reading this verse the week of September 11th, 2001, that a nation's going to come against you and they're going to be fierce. They're going to be like a swooping eagle. And of course, we know the method of attack on September 11th, 2001. It's an appointed scripture and, and, and God trying to give us warning. And, and in fact, there's a, um, there's a company that makes the one-year Bible. Um, you know, the, uh, who, who's got the one-year Bible? They give you Old Testament, New Testament, and then they give you a proverb. On September 11, 2001, in the one-year Bible, you know what the verse is? It's Isaiah 9.10. It, it says that our, our rocks have fallen. I'm sorry, it's not in my notes. Um, there we go. The bricks have fallen, but we will build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. Can you go to the verse just before that? It says, therefore, the Lord shall set up adversaries of resin against them and join his enemies together. No, no. Go to the verse before. Yeah. Yeah. Look, look at the last phrase. That say in the pride and stoutness of heart, we're going to rebuild the bricks that have fallen. This was, okay, so what happened in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah uh, Israel had turned from God and God was trying to warn them, trying to get them to come back to him in repentance. And so God allowed the city of Jerusalem to essentially get attacked and breached so that people would be stirred and go back to God. It was in God's mercy. And so that's what happened. The walls were breached. That's what we read about. The bricks have fallen. Uh, sycamores are cut down. So it was an act of defiance. Their response was not one of repentance in, in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. Their response was, a, was an act of pride and, and defiance of God. Say, listen, our, our bricks have fallen, but we're going to rebuild with hewn stone. Our sycamores have, have been cut down. We'll, we'll put cedars in their stead. It didn't drive them to God. It drove them to be more proud and more arrogant. And, and, and the reason why I bring this up is because on September 12th, 2001, the Democratic Senate Majority Leader in the Senate floor reads that verse. The very same verse that the nation of Israel said after God mercifully allowed them to get breached in an attempt to drive them back to repentance to him is the very same verse that, that the Democratic Senate Majority Leader read on the Senate floor, an act of defiance, not one getting driven back towards God. And at the base of the Twin Towers, there was a sycamore tree. Has anybody ever heard this? It's all in a book called The Harbinger, Jonathan Kahn, Okay. At the base of the Twin Towers, there was a sycamore tree that was cut down. And obviously, well, you know, when the towers collapsed, there were bricks that had fallen. And so the bricks had fallen and our sycamore had been cut down. And what did we say? We'll rebuild with hewn stone. We're going to put cedars in their stead. What did they do after the Twin Towers fell? After all the years after, I believe it was 2003 or 2004, they went into the mountains of New York and they cut out hewn stone. And they brought that back to ground zero as the memorial site. And where the sycamore tree that was at, they put it on display. They have the root system there. But instead of having the sycamore tree, what did they do? The exact same thing that Israel did. We put cedars in their place. It's exactly what happened in Isaiah 9 and 10. And that's the verse that God had allowed to be in the one-year Bible on September 11th, 2001. 
You, you can trust in the Bible. It's alive. It's living and it's breathing. It's the inspired word of God and it is without error. In preparation for this, I, I was studying yesterday, um, you know, just trying to make sure that I was, I was pre- prepared for tonight. And I came across something that I did not expect. There's a man by the name of John, John Bevere. He has a lot of great books. And, and I, this is something that, that he said. And um, it's, it's, it just it blew my mind. I, I had to watch this short video clip probably, probably five, six times. He says, if you, if you start in the book of Genesis, now the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. So if you, if you can read in Hebrew in the original language, and every 50th letter in the book of Genesis, it spells Torah. So the 50th letter would be a T. The 100th letter would be an O. 150 would be an R. Everybody following me? You go through the whole book of Genesis... Every 50th letter, it spells Torah throughout the book of Genesis. So he went to the book of Exodus. Every 50th letter in the book of Exodus spells out Torah. Okay, does everybody follow me? If we skip Leviticus and you go to Numbers, it's not the 50th letter in Numbers. It's the 49th letter in Numbers. Every 49th letter spells Torah, except Torah is spelled backwards. Okay, We know Torah is the first five books of the Bible, right? We, we know that. So it spells Torah, but it's actually spelling it backwards, right? So instead of the first letter being a T, you know, it's going to be the H that would be first. Then the 100th letter, or the, the 198th letter would be an A. Is, it, is it, everybody follow me? Okay. If you go to Deuteronomy... It's the exact same thing as uh, what Numbers is. It spells Torah backwards every 49th letter. Genesis and Exodus are spelling Torah forward to Leviticus. Numbers and Deuteronomy are spelling Torah backwards to Leviticus. So he was curious about Leviticus. And what he found is every seventh letter it spelled it spelled Y-H-V-H Yahweh now when you study that that's what when Moses was sent back to you know back to um, Pharaoh he says who do I tell him that sent me and God says I am that I am that's where we get that Yahweh Y-H-W-H a lot of times it's translated Y-H-V-H So every seventh letter spells literally, I am that I am. How amazing is the word of God that when, listen, when the law is getting written by Moses, God is putting himself in the law because God knows nobody can fulfill the law. The law is weak in the flesh. If we could fulfill the law, we wouldn't need a savior. So all the way back in the beginning when the law is getting written down, God's already providing a way of escape from the law that he's currently writing. How amazing is the word of God that you can trust it in such a great, great degree. It's never failing. 
I came across a, an amazing picture. Everybody, I, if you ever heard Pastor tell the story about, you know, if you take the Bible, you know, and you, and you tug over here on Revelation, something over here in Genesis Puckers. You ever heard that? I, I kind of, I found a, I found a photo. I'm, I'm sure a lot of you have seen it. Um, but if they put that photo on the screen behind me, this is, see all those white bars at the bottom of this photo? Those are not only books of the Bible, but every chapter in every book of the Bible. So all the way to the left is Genesis, all the way to the right, obviously, Revelation. See the one really long one in the middle? Psalm 119. In your Bible reading, that's the one that gets you. You're in Psalm 119 for a while. Longest chapter in the Bible, right? So what this is, is... What we talked about, okay, so Leviticus 14, when Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest and tell him to offer the gift that Moses commanded, there would be an arch from Leviticus 14 all the way into the New Testament Gospels where Jesus said that. It's a correlation, it's a connection from verses in chapters, one verse to another. And they've actually calculated how many confluences are in the Bible here. And the closer they are in, in, you know, where they fall in the Bible, those are the ones at the bottom with the purple and the blues. When you get the bigger arches, that, that of course, Genesis to Revelation. But there are actually 63,779 correlating verses in the Bible. There's no way possible that humanity, we can't even understand the Bible. When we're reading it, let alone create and craft with, with precision the masterpiece that is the Word of God. We don't have the capability to do that. You can trust in, you can trust in the Bible. It's dependable, it's reliable. In fact, I believe there's something hidden. There's something hidden in that verse. Um, I, I believe it's, it's not, sorry, Matthew, it's not in there. I believe it's in Psalm 119. Um, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I, I, I believe that there's something there. I, I started really studying lamps, lamps in the, in the Bible days. And, you know, um, there it is. So studying um, you know, what, what did the lamp look like? Because in my mind, even like the, the, the ten virgin where their lamps didn't have the oil, you know, like, you remember that? I always pictured the antique lamp that you see at, a, at, a, at an antique shop. That's just what I see in my mind. But that is nowhere close to the, to the lamps that they had in the Old Testament. It was actually just like a, a bowl of pottery with a hole in the top and like a, a little spout with a wick sticking out. So it was very, very personal and very, very close um, you know, to that. So, but I was reading that verse and it said, that word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And, and, and at first I thought, well, that, that's two different things. You know, you've got a lamp for something that's close and you've got a light for your path that's a little bit further out. But the more I began to study lamps, the more I realized that a lamp is just a vessel. A lamp is just a container. If, if I had a flashlight here with no batteries, it does no good. Right? Does everybody follow me? A, a, a lamp is, has the capability of producing light. And, and I think that, that sometimes is, is how people treat the Word of God. 
They, 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 it's a lamp. But unless you have the light to put in the lamp, it's not going to illuminate your path. In fact, John said it this way. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. There are a lot of people who read that Bible as just a book to read. They study it, but they don't know the author. When you have a relationship, when you pray before you read that Word, now that Word is a lamp and a light because who's the light of the world you can't you can't separate this from god they're the same the god of the word is the god of the word he spoke and it was and that's what's so powerful about a relationship with jesus christ don't ever just read the bible pray and read the bible have a relationship with jesus christ because there's a lot of people Without relationship, read that Bible and get sent way off track. They're deceived from reading the Bible. You've got to know the God of the Bible and have a relationship with the God who who crafted it and created it. And when you do, now it's a lamp and it's a light because God is leading me through that scripture. All right? So if we could all stand, if we could all stand... I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm going to have the, the team come. I just, um, I just really, I just really, um, I know this is just a, a teaching, you know, a teaching night. Um, and I think about teaching Bible studies and I think about talking and witnessing to people. And I really feel like there's a, there's a challenge to this church to be more um, outreach and, and, and witnessing and, and, um, and try to evangelize our city. And, you know, I can, I can remember, you know, talking with people and it's, it's really hard to witness to somebody who, who doesn't believe in the Bible. You know, we taught our kids growing up, you know, with all the social issues and things that, you know, they deal with in school. And it's like, well, you know, a lot of times people say, well, how do you feel about that? Like, we rebuked that in our kids. I said, you don't get to decide how you feel about it. What, do, what does the word have to say about it? And that determines how you feel about it, right? But everything I believe can be melted or traced back to this book. And, and if, if you're talking with somebody and you're witnessing to somebody and they say, I don't really believe the Bible. How are you going to witness to that person? They've rendered you ineffective just with their unbelief. And so that's the point of tonight. That's the point of tonight. We have to, we, I know everybody in this room believes that the Bible is authentic and the Bible is real. But how do you witness and how do you reach somebody that doesn't believe it? Can you talk with them and try to walk them through that moment, right? So I challenge you. I challenge you. You know, I know we've got 21 days of prayer and fasting coming up. Um, you know, if you've never read the Bible through, read it. Listen, I know it's a grind, Right? There are times I'll self-admit to you all, I've been two, two, maybe three weeks behind, and you get caught up. Listen, you can do it, right? You can do it. Spend time in the Word of God because, listen, there's going to be times in your life where you're going to need some inspiration. 
You're going to need some correction. You're going to need some instruction. And if you wait till that time to figure out whether or not you believe that book or not, or whether or not it's in your heart or not, it's already too late. you got to put it in right now before those times ever come. So when they come, you can say, you know what? I am more than a conqueror. I am. I can do all things through Christ. God is with me and God is for me. It's so essential and so vital that we, we stick our claws into the word of God. Because we don't know what tomorrow holds. There could be a day where we no longer have access to this Bible. And if you don't have it in your heart, you're in real trouble. Real trouble. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you, God, for the privilege and the honor, God, of teaching your people, God, that your word is true, that your word is essential, that it's vital, it's dependable, it's reliable, God, that no matter what the day is, no matter what, what the situation is or what the world tries to convince me of, God, your word is absolute. God, heaven and earth are going to pass away, but not your word. Your word, oh God, can never pass away. God, it was your word in the beginning that created all things, my God. So how in the world can I allow the world to be bigger than the word, oh Lord? There is no situation, God, that I could ever come across. God, that your word isn't able to help sustain me through. I thank you, God, for this privilege. I pray, God, over each and every one of us tonight, my Jesus. I pray, God, that you would stir us, stir us inside, God. Let there be a return. Let there be a deep a deep return, God, to the study, God, of your word. God, and I, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help me. Help me to study it better. Help me, God, to be more prepared and to have more of it in my heart and in my spirit, God, that I could be a better witness, that I could be a better light, God, that I could be better for you, that I could be more profitable to you, my Jesus. Dear God, I pray, give these people a night of rest, God. I know, God, that the holidays can be weary, God. I know that, Lord, work and and, and the daily life, God, can, can be a lot to hold, a lot to carry, God. I pray, Lord Jesus, your provision tonight, God, your blessing and favor. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, I love you all. God bless you. And uh, we'll see you back here on Sunday. Reminder, one service, 1130. And uh, we'll see everybody back here on Sunday.